Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Sir Richard Friend from the University of Cambridge discusses creative tensions between science and technology as part of the Research in the World series. The twist that I hope I could convince you um, of is that the flow from science to technology is not the, the only story. In fact, it probably isn't the main story. It is that we scientists depend on technology uh, to work out or give us the tools to do the next thing. I sometimes think that gets lost. Well, I don't think we scientists misunderstand that, um, but somehow um, the, the sense of the unexpected is, is, can be thrown away by the way media um, report. Uh, for example, the Large Hadron Collider is a very expensive toy that's been constructed to find the Higgs boson so that theoreticians have worked out what is going to be found and the only job left to do is to find it. I hope I can dispel that misconception. I don't believe that particle physicists believe that for one moment. Um, the, the Large Hadron Collider will be important for what it throws up that no one had predicted, not for what has been predicted. Uh, and that is the sort of theme for the evening, um, uh, which I, I hope will be moderately light-hearted. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to interleave things that um, I've been associated with um, as well. So we're about a hundred years past one of the sort of most exciting areas, times, periods in physics, um, and there are plenty of centenaries uh, to, dis to, to uh, celebrate. Uh, Manchester um, is, is having its turn at Rutherford um, in 2011. Uh, because Rutherford did do some important things in Manchester uh, before he came to Cambridge. Um, <clears throat> uh, in 1909, there was the famous Rutherford and Marsden experiment, which was the clue that what people had thought about the structure of matter, atoms and so on, had to be revised completely. Uh, the experiment, um, I'm sure I don't need to tell some of you, uh, is that alpha particles, which are sort of like helium atoms without the electrons, uh, bashed into a metal foil, and uh, what was done was to then measure the angle at which they were scattered. And the surprise is that some of them came back um, almost sort of, you know, sort of you know, straight back in the direction that they'd been fired, which demonstrated that there had to be something very massive and very... Um, um, with a, uh, in fact, effectively, all the mass of the atom had to be in a very small volume, utterly unexpected. So there's Rutherford's words. Um, uh, uh, it was almost as if you fire a 15-inch shell at a piece of tissue paper and it came back and hit you. Wonderful nautical um, um, metaphor from a time when the British Navy was a, a grand um, sight. Um, and uh, by 1911, his model for the atomic nucleus had been constructed, and that is the centenary um, we we celebrate. There's even a little bit of um, um, Rutherford. Um, well, the next problem was uh, to examine whether means could be found to break up the stable elements by artificial method. Before this could be attempted with any chance of success, it was necessary to have a clearer conception of the structure of atoms. The idea of the nuclear structure of atoms, which I suggested in 1911, that's proved very useful for this purpose. That was a, 
Wonderful. Maybe the clip was stopped there before he went and spoilt it, but it, <laughs> but it is good. I mean, of course, Rutherford was, was one of these larger-than-life figures. Um, the, the wonderful photographs, um, uh, uh, the, the, if you look at the top, uh, it says, Talk softly, please. Apparently, uh, that, that was a sign put up um, to persuade Rutherford not to make so much noise. Um, when he came into the lab. Um, I think there's a fair tradition of, 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 of keep having sort of decoys to keep the professor away from the experiments. I think it's uh, long established. Uh, but I put that up, part, well, partly because um, very appropriately it's, the centenary is being celebrated, but it's a lovely example of an experiment which wasn't supposed to show what it showed and it just changed the way um, we view the world. I mean, a, a spectacular discovery. But that isn't actually the sort of discovery in science that is most, always, most often put across. Einstein is the icon, and followed maybe by Newton, or possibly the other way around. But that armchair, armchair contemplation, which um, they achieved, um, I, I, if we can put some more Cambridge was, um, names in, um, there are other places too, but Paul Dirac and his um, uh, postulating that antimatter exists as well as matter um, because he chose to not throw away the solution to his relativistic Schrodinger equation that suggested that mass might be negative, um, of course is rightly celebrated. Brian Josephson, tunneling of superconducting electron pairs. There are examples of where someone sits down and thinks maybe sees some insight from equations, and it's enormously celebrated. Um, but if you sit down and work out the list of those, it's not that large. Um, most of the time, it's discovery in the laboratory, and the um, Rutherford example, I think, fits that beautifully. Um, Galileo, um, uh, uh, of course, enormously important figure in the history of science, um, he, he was lucky that he managed to borrow other people's technology um, and, and go on and um, see the motion of the moon, well, see the moons of Jupiter and see them um, moving around Jupiter. So a lot of what has happened in science and continues to happen is that we grab hold of a tool, um, which I can, if I call it disparagingly technology, I don't mean to disparage it, but technology in the sense of how a scientist uses it is that someone else has done the hard work, um, probably doing something useful, uh, and we then borrow it um, and use it to discover something about the world. So, that's, um, so we piggyback. So Galileo, um, of course, um, is celebrated for being the first to point a useful telescope um, in the sky. Uh, his, these remarkable images of, or drawings from what he saw of the surface of the moon. Um, and, and, and most importantly, um, his pointing the telescope at Jupiter and seeing that Jupiter had satellites moving around it and you could see them moving around. So what did he do? Well, he turned out to be um, obviously not the first to make lenses. Uh, they were made um, in the Netherlands uh, to help us see. Reading glasses were pretty useful. And he wasn't the first to make a, a telescope. That, that again, uh, has its origins in the Netherlands. Um, so Lippehey was the one who gains most credit for that, but he might just have been the one that got the PR right, uh, and others were prob probably doing it too. But 
Galileo turned out to be better at making telescopes than others. Uh, uh, he managed to get a magnification that was large enough to be useful, in part just by um, not using a lens that was too large, just putting a, um, a stopping down with a um, diaphragm uh, so just the centre of the lens was used, so that his magnification of 30 uh, was, was useful. And, of course, that's what he then um, managed to do with it. Uh, the little images down the bottom here, I think, show the motion of the, the different projections of the satellites of Jupiter uh, finding their way around. So I, I, Galileo obviously was a genius, but he was also very quick at picking up on technology, and he did actually get a competitive advantage by making a better telescope um, than others. Apparently, Newton was a very good um, constructor of uh, scientific instruments. His um, reflecting telescope was, was, was very significant. So let's skip forward to the modern day and move to the world of semiconductors. Um, and what's sort of interesting there, and possibly a message that you know, a lot of my community in um, condensed matter physics has probably not fully owned up to, is that we've had the most spectacular free ride of technology for half a century. Transistors came along in the late 40s. Um, they came along not because of scientists, but because of engineers in Bell Labs. Um, I mean, f famously, the discovery of zone refining as a way of hauling impurities out of single crystals of germanium and silicon allowed those materials to be good enough to um, make useful um, transistors. Uh, but the transistor as this solid-state device as a test bed for exploring actually weird and strange um, quantum mechanical phenomena, of course, is very celebrated. Uh, so the field-effect transistor, the, the CMOS technology transistor, um, provided um, a sort of perfect experimental model for what happens if I confine mobile electrons to the interface, uh, at an interface between insulator, which is the silicon dioxide, and the semiconductor, which is the silicon. Just forcing electrons to be confined in a plane um, uh, changes their properties quite significantly. And in a magnetic field, very strange quantum mechanical phenomena, the quantum Hall effect, the fractional quantum Hall effect, uh, appeared. So, um, and of course they both won their uh, won Nobel Prizes um, quite correctly. But behind that, one would see that none of that would have happened if there hadn't been literally billions and billions of spend, expenditure on the engineering of the semiconductors. And that was done because they were useful. So, uh, we have a small challenge, those of us who work in this space, that um, <clears throat> that technology has sort of stopped advancing in the sense that it pushes things back into the lab and we have to sort of um, invent new things to do. Uh, another centenary um, is, is that of the discovery of superconductivity. There are lots of um, conferences on superconductivity in 2011. Um, superconductivity um, is the most extraordinary phenomenon that just sort of defies you know, all one's instincts. You can uh, take a metal down to a low temperature um, and it loses all electrical resistance. I mean, the, the physical world that we, we see around us is one where resistance is just everywhere. Friction is unavoidable. 
uh, we, we, uh, we, we just presume that there must always be something that slows motion down because there's something which will sort of scatter and dissipate energy. But if, uh, in fact, most metals, when cooled down pretty cold, lose resistance completely so that it's possible to set up a circulating electrical current which is persistent, which is... So that's how um, magnets for um, uh, MRI scanning uh, are now operated, that the, um, there is a, a, a superconducting current that flows in the coil that sets up the magnetic field, and it doesn't die away. So where did that come from? Um, well, no one was looking for superconductivity because no one would have thought it would ever have existed. It's so strange. And the, 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 again, the quantum mechanical origins um, or explanations for it um, actually took more than 50 years from the discovery of superconductivity. So where did it come from? Well, it was actually um, the, the sort of race to uh, liquefy um, all the available gases um, that uh, got uh, everyone excited um, in the first part of the 19th century of the 20th century, um, and that allowed low temperatures to be reached, uh, and that's how uh, superconductivity was discovered. I'll say not so much about the sort of recent flurry of activity on high-temperature superconductors, because that would be too much uh, for this evening. So the, the, the search was to take available gases. Um, nitrogen is relatively easy to liquefy. That liquefies at about minus 200 degrees, um, that's 200 degrees below uh, zero Celsius. Uh, but as you, you work down through the available gases, so there's argon and there's um, hydrogen, um, uh, as they boil at lower temperatures, uh, it becomes harder and harder to liquefy them uh, because there's not very much um, difference in energy between the gas and the liquid state. Uh, so it required a pretty serious um, uh, amount of technology to do it. Um, so Dewar, who managed most of the gases in the UK, uh, didn't get to, to helium, which is the ultimate one. It was Kamelik Honors um, in Leiden in the Netherlands who had better technology. He's, he had more, more technicians and more engineering, uh, and he got there. And fairly soon after he got there, um, they set about measuring the resistance of metals. There were different models around that metals might become more conducting or less conducting, um, but what they hadn't thought was that metals would become completely superconducting, which, and that they discovered in 1911, that mercury lost all electrical resistance, which is um, one of those just extraordinary, it was a very important um, discovery because it, sheds light on some of the more profound aspects of the quantum mechanical nature of, 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 uh, of matter. I've worked through enough ancient examples, but the, the message that I hope I've got across um, is simple enough, that um, the, it's the unexpected that happens, and the unexpected most of the time happens when someone tries an experiment that they couldn't have done before because something new was available in the lab. Well, I'm going to now switch gear pretty substantially and talk a bit about things that we've done in Cambridge, um, which caused me um, to be um, <clears throat> originally just a tame semiconductor physicist uh, and then to end up being um, accused of being an engineer as well, um, which is a dangerous thing to do in a physics department. Um, <clears throat> and the story, as I'm sure um, I, I don't need to labour, 
is that it's the interaction between the engineering and the physics, which is um, the piece that I hadn't anticipated and has proved in many ways um, the most um, intellectually satisfying. Uh, so um, I don't want to say too much about um, any more of the science than is needed to um, get the talk across. Um, but the materials that we were looking at in the, the early 1980s Carbon-based well, molecules, um, ideally stretched out as long, as, as long chains, polymers or plastics. The reason we like polymers is that they can be processed. You, most of the time, if you want to do semiconductor technology, all the effort goes into how you make thin films of, um, or thin layers of the semiconductor, and it's layer-by-layer layer assembly that makes a device. So, of course, the, the world of semiconductors is um, all about silicon um, these days. Uh, silicon is, a, is grown as a single crystal. It's sliced up into wafers with diamond saws. They're polished and then semiconductor structures are um, constructed into the um, patterned onto the surface of the silicon wafer and diced up and uh, that's how the Intel make their chips. Uh, but there's an interesting um, sort of parallel universe, which is where um, is the world of carbon. And uh, in many ways, nature has chosen to make molecules which, if one wants to look at it slightly perversely, do semiconductor-like things. Uh, that's where almost anything that nature makes that is coloured, um, it makes for a purpose. And colour is there to interact with sunlight. Um, so molecules in the back of the eye are coloured. Um, otherwise, um, sunlight wouldn't do anything with them. And of course, the molecules in, uh, that are used in photosynthesis are coloured. And photosynthesis is um, the first stages of photosynthesis are remarkably like um, uh, what goes on in solar cells. So, that sort of space between biology's molecules and silicon is now is the one that has sort of turned out to be both, inter both interesting, which is why we were playing around with it in the early 80s but also potentially useful um, because we have materials which turn out to be relatively easy to process. And if you can make things, um, then you become an engineer. So um, I mean, he here is a chemical structure for those of you who like them. Um, I should probably call uh, it's a polymer chain with um, benzene rings or phenylenes. Uh, that's a six-membered ring. And then there's a two carbons, which is a vinyl unit. And then it repeats. Um, now, uh, I, I can... I can call that a nanographene ribbon for those who like graphene, um, because it's, it is a nanographene ribbon, uh, in that the, 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 the chemical structure, the chemical bonds um, on that structure are the same as in graphite or graphene. There are only three nearest neighbors to each carbon. The carbons are at the vertices of the um, hexagons, um, and, the, and there are two on the vinylene. Uh, so they only have three bonds. And it's the fourth bonding electron that is represented by the double bonds um, on that structure. And it's a representation. That's not quite how it is. But those electrons are relatively free to move around. And it's because they're free to move around uh, that they have energy levels which are accessible to visible light. And it turns out we can move um, electronic charges around very easily. So the bottom panel shows some... Uh, little images of some of these in solution. Uh, and depending on what the repeat motif is on the polymer, uh, you can change its color. I mean, that one is the polymer. 
uh, has um, is a sort of yellow-green fluorescent solution um, that you can see. So the analogies with, with uh, natural products, I can sort of, um, you know, I, I've mentioned, and uh, here are some chemical structures for those who like them. Uh, what you see is that when nature makes something which is coloured, it again does it by using uh, carbon with just three neighbouring atoms, three covalent bonds, uh, most of, uh, which are sort of shown rather schematically by their absence. But it's the, the alternation of double and single carbon-carbon bonds is the clue. So beta-carotene, which of course is orange, um, is, uh, has that structure. The, the retinal molecule that is used in the back of your eye, again, has that structure. It's the same, um, there's, there's this fourth electron um, uh, that's, in, that, that's a weakly bonded, the pi electron, that has these semiconductor-like properties. So we discovered um, in, the, in the early 80s, we were one of the very few physics groups sort of mucking around with materials which were um, pretty messy. Um, and there's a sort of suggestion that um, when, if everybody else is turning towards sophistication, because in those days um, the rest of the physics community was moving from silicon to gallium arsenide uh, because, you could, uh, because that was different and difficult, um, we went in a different direction, um, which was a, away from control into this murky world of chemistry, and worse than that, organic chemistry. Um, but there were materials which were just about good enough that we could make thin films of these plastics that act as semiconductors. Um, and by 1988, we'd managed to discover how to make um, respectable transistors, um, so long as you kept them in a vacuum. If you let them anywhere in air, they oxidized and disappeared, which is a small problem. Um, uh, but then we had a... A, a moment of um, when we um, knew that there was something important to do. And this was just looking at a very simple structure. It's a sandwich of um, two metals, the, the orange layer, which is actually a transparent metal, as we used it here, indium tin oxide, which is the transparent metal that you look through when you look at a liquid crystal display, um, on, sitting on a glass substrate. And we've literally painted down a layer of the conducting polymer or semiconducting polymer, and evaporated a metal on top to make a very simple diode. Um, and what was discovered, um, as Jeremy Burroughs um, no, noticed by accident, was that this structure was resolutely insulating, um, but when the voltage was turned up, rather than blowing up, um, it emitted not very much, but enough green light to tell us that um, it was functioning as a light-emitting structure. What we were doing was creating, by electrical excitation, what the materials do anyway, which is to act as sort of fluorescent paint. Um, they're naturally very fluorescent, uh, but that fluorescence we're now inducing uh, by electrical excitation. So that was a sort of eureka moment. It was a very, um, it was a great moment. Um, the sort of sociology of what happens when there's, there's something that is discovered which you can actually see, which doesn't happen often in a physics environment, um, was, was amazing. I mean, there's a, a large fraction of the, the Cavendish, I think, trooped into this small lab to see these things glowing dimly. And, and they were pretty dim. Um, so um, they had to live in, in um, vacuums. So there's a sort of brass canister with a window, um, which is sitting in front, with a magnifying glass in front of it. Uh, that is the light. Um, it doesn't look much... <laughs> But when the lights are off, it was good enough. Um, 
so, um, so there was a whiteboard behind it, um, which uh, uh, got some artwork, which is rather more impressive than the tired. <laughs> Uh, so, so, so here, here is the, uh, the, the here is the glowing object, um, uh, and I, 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 it took a while to track down who did it. It's actually Carl Zemelis, who is now physical sciences editor at Nature, um, um, who, who owns up to it. Um, but it's, uh, um, but that was a, a great moment, um, and it's a moment that was sort of important um, because it was just a, a blindingly obvious that if you could make a device which was plausibly useful and all you had to do was literally paint a semiconductor onto a substrate, that was much easier than growing a single crystal of silicon, zone refining it to make it pure, slicing it with a diamond saw into wafers, um, and then um, dicing it up and putting little bits of wafer um, all over the place. That's a different world. So the fact that it was potentially scalable, um, we were very aware of. Um, and we did file, we rushed, well, we, we, I, I think I had, well, I know I had had some brush with industry, had had funding from industry, and I understood that there were things called patents, um, that you have to file before you talk about things. So we did, uh, we went off to the technology transfer office um, in, in Cambridge, which in those days, in, um, um, in 1989, uh, had a staff of four, um, and it, it ran in the mode of tea and sympathy, um, uh, w w which was not a bad mode, actually. There were some very bright people there who, who were sort of world-wise. Um, and what they did was tell us what we had to do and what we shouldn't do. Um, so the, we went off to a patent agent in London um, who they recommended, who was very good, uh, who did us a loss leader. Uh, they, they charged us £1,000, which three of us, Donald Bradley, who's now professor at Imperial College, and um, Jeremy Burrows, who's been chief technology officer at the company we formed, Cambridge Display Technology, and myself, we, we forked out £333 for that because the university had no way, no way of paying. Um, and I mean, and it, was, it was cheap at the price. So the, the patent agents have probably got at least £100,000 worth of business on that one patent over the years. It's, uh, so they were smart. Uh, so having got um, the patent, uh, which seemed a good thing to do, uh, we then published the paper. Um, um, and uh, the paper we, we published in Nature, it's turned out to be... It's, it's in the top 20 of most cited papers in Nature. It's, it's got 7,000... It's over 7,000 citations now. It's been enormously... Um, significant, but more importantly, we had a, a, a patent before that. Um, we took a bit of a chance that we delayed publishing before we did file, um, the, uh, before we, um, while well, we did the patent filing. So, what's interesting about patents is that um, you think, um, when you're sort of young and naive, that if you have a patent, it's like a sort of stack of banknotes, all you have to do is go and spend it. Uh, and actually, it's much more like having a newborn baby. Um, uh, they are very expensive and time-consuming um, and all-absorbing. Um, they, they, they uh, they're, they're sort of all right for a while. The first filing is reasonably cheap, but within a year, you have to elect what you do internationally. Um, and every time you do something, the cost goes up by a factor of 10. So you're, you're in for... 10 grand um, at the end of year one if you want to go for worldwide, worldwide protection. 
Um, so in various ways, having um, we, we did all the obvious things that one was supposed to do, which is to go off, go round to um, what was then the British um, electronics industry. Um, uh, we don't <clears throat> we don't really have one any longer. There, there was one um, twenty years ago. So we went off to the um, great British companies, to um, GEC, for example, and what they told us. Um, in, in, in sort of in code was, well, we will take the patent off you and we'll probably pick up the costs of, of um, you know, securing it and, uh, and having it registered. But of course, we'll get complete control and we won't do anything with it because it's not our business. We knew what we were doing anyway and this wasn't on the critical path. So if you force us to take the patent, we will, but we will make sure nothing valuable ever happens to it. Um, and they said that in the nicest possible way, and they may not actually have realised that that's what they were telling us. Um, and it was really having tested that a few times um, w w that we sort of came back and decided that we really needed to start a company um, of our own to sort of nurture this increasingly expensive and stroppy patent. Um, and uh, so that's actually how we ended up forming a company. Um, we got money in the most peculiar ways. Um, getting the, univer the university um, did eventually invest cash, but only after we got some cash from elsewhere. Um, and the, the cash came um, from press we got after we had some wonderful article in the Sunday Times. Um, I don't read the Sunday Times. Um, but others do. Uh, and there was an article which suggested that we would be able to make plastic newspapers that you could read in the bath. And there was this little sort of cartoon of <laughs> someone in a bath reading one of our plastic newspapers, uh, which, of course, the derision around the Cavendish was, 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 <laughs> was, was everywhere. You know, it has to get a very thick skin. Um, but the, the, the former road manager of Phil Collins and Genesis uh, had turned into their fund manager... And he thought maybe our displays, uh, which of course we couldn't then make, um, would be great for their road shows. Um, and he turned up, and he turned out to know more about risk and venture capital than any of the venture capital lot we ever met. And they, they put money up, um, and they gave us free tickets to a concert. And, uh, <laughs> which, which, which my family were really impressed with. <laughs> um, but that's how uh, things sort of started. Um, well, the story... Uh, with um, Cambridge Display Technology has sort of survived. Um, uh, it currently has 150 employees um, in and around Cambridge. Uh, it um, has had an interesting history, which, which uh, <clears throat> that's not interesting this evening, um, but it um, was briefly, uh, for a couple of years, listed on NASDAQ, um, and then it was acquired um, completely by Sumitomo Chemical Company in Japan, who've actually put a lot of support in, and that's why there are 150 people um, at CDT. And what, they, and what happened at CDT in, um, in its various phases was the education that I'd never have got if I'd just been a scientist. And that is that scientists um, can make things once, um, and if they're wise enough, they don't do the experiment twice in case the result gets too complicated, and they rush off and write a paper and get it in a good journal. Um, and get promoted on the back of it. Um, but engineers make things um, time and time again, and they make them better and better. So our original LEDs lasted a few minutes, um, 
which is pretty good. Um, uh, and that um, was as, as much as we could do. Um, 20 years on, uh, the projected lifetime is you know, at least 10 times as much as these fluorescent, as long as these fluorescent lamps. It's sort of beyond 100,000 hours. And behind that, there is the most spectacular, um, detailed, heavyweight process materials engineering that has been done. Uh, just to begin to take, to uh, look at the challenge of how you can make an organic, you know, molecular material as pure as silicon is um, uh, when it's been zone refined, um, and to work out which of the you know, side chains on the polymer, you know, after you know, a few trillion operations, might decide to do a chemical reaction which we don't want to happen. These are incredibly difficult things to do. They only get done when there is a focus and a purpose and an engineering context. Um, it's been a it's been spectacularly successful. Uh, it's been done in, this, in, in um, the uh, context of a whole series of respectable articles from uh, people in places like Bell Labs um, uh, explaining why it would never work. Molecular materials would be in, inherently just not stable enough to do this. That's not true, and um, it's done something else which is that those um, people at CDT um, who, of course, have run an operation which is orders of magnitude larger than we would ever have run in the university, did the engineering, and then they handed it back to us to carry on doing the experiments. So our research group back in the university has had this unexpected, unfair advantage over the rest of the community in that we had our homegrown company that was feeding all these improvements back in, um, and that has kept us, um, it's provided, it's been a huge asset. It's um, not what I'd expected. The classical model of spin-off is that in the course of your science, you discover something which is useful, but that use is tangential or, um, or, um, or becomes uh, increasingly irrelevant to where your science is going. So you part company and everybody's happy. But we didn't park company, we ran in parallel paths, and there was this sort of cross-fertilization that has gone on for a long time. Uh, what we offered in return for their technology was, um, through fundamental understanding, um, actually a whole set of patents which have been very important for that business. So one of the um, very important sort of engineering applications um, or engineering developments um, is the possibility of um, patterning not by sort of painting but by printing. Um, and the printing method that, uh, um, where most effort has gone is inkjet. I mean, inkjet, of course, we know um, produces wonderful resolution pictures um, for home photography. Uh, if we can generalize the idea of ink from stuff that you put on paper to look at to functional materials that can work in transistors or work in light-emitting diodes, uh, then we have a new manufacturing method, and it's enormously, I mean, it, it cuts out um, more than a factor of 10 reduction in process steps over other patenting methods. Uh, so we had um, Epson, um, who make printers, approach not me in the university, but the company we'd set up to collaborate on uh, turning our materials into printable materials, um, and that's turned out to be pretty important. 
Um, there are sort of images of red, green, and blue, um, which are the three primary colors needed to make um, a full color display. Um, but through that, we got access to printing, um, and that came back into the university. Um, so th the technology at the moment is, is sort of sort of in the market. Um, um, organic LEDs actually made not by printing the polymers, but by vacuum subliming lower molecular weight materials. Um, uh, uh, Samsung have managed to get working very well. So Samsung um, and other Korean smartphones have better displays than iPhones because Apple has um, <clears throat> last century's display technology still because um, they don't make them in the USA. Um, uh, so that's already in the market and big. But there are many other applications. One of the ones that I find quite astounding is that uh, it's possible to make these light emitters, and I've forgotten to show you a sort of 10-year-old little sort of... You might be, able to, uh, might be able to see there's a sort of moving image across a little display. That's the, uh, the, the PPV green. Um, um, that's a small sort of demonstration display, which no one would pay good money for now. Um, but, and it's, it's moderately efficient, but it's turned out that... Um, Efficiencies are now um, very, very high. They're as high as gallium nitride um, blue LEDs. And this looks like a serious technology for efficient lighting. So all the world's um, major lighting companies have big programs on organic um, sort of large area um, uh, uh, light sources because large area is actually what you want for um, interior lighting. So the rest of the panel we don't need to worry about. So, um, and I'm not going to give, I don't think I need to tell you how transistors work this evening. So, one of the things we did with the inkjet printing, um, which w of course came company to company and then found its way into the university, of course the purpose of that was to be able to make the light emitting diodes patterned, but we had a go at being able to print um, small structures and see we wanted to see if we could print transistors. TFT stands for thin film transistor. Now, um, for those who know what transistors are, the characteristics, which are not so easy to see on the screen on the right, um, look like transistor characteristics. Um, but for those who don't, um, here is a picture of a transistor. You can just about make out that there are t there's a two-pronged fork down here and a three-pronged fork at the top, um, and they've been arranged to have sort of interpenetrating... So they're, they're, they're interpenetrating. Those are the two source and drain contacts. We want to try and induce with electric fields some charges in the semiconductor which will provide a conducting pathway between these two electrodes. And that, um, the, the gate that sets the field up to do that is this sort of pad, that you, rectangular pad behind. And that was all done by inkjet printing, um, actually a conducting version of one of our semiconductors. Um, and it's, uh, it's nice that it works, and that the fact that it works is in many ways very surprising. That happens to be much too big to be useful. The, the, uh, this, that length bar is a quarter of a millimetre. turns out that inkjet printing is not that high resolution in the semiconductor world. Um, it's, it's fine if you're looking at a picture um, or a print. It's pretty large if you're trying to make um, a small transistor. Uh, but we did get a company going. Um, the company is called Plastic Logic, which was founded in 2000. And what, was, um, what we managed to do fairly quickly, and the details I won't go into, was to get rather smaller structures um, down at about, um, about a fifth of the diameter of a human hair as this magic 
separation between the two top electrodes, um, typically about five microns. Um, and for those who like transistor characteristics, these are quite good. They're, they're comparable to um, thin film amorphous silicon, which is today's technology. Um, but they were made with our um, plastic semiconductors, um, and therefore, unlike silicon that is done at very high temperatures, and you can either you can only put it onto glass um, if you want to put it as a thin film, um, we could put this onto uh, plastic. So what was done, um, or what plastic logic has done, is to assemble a complete transistor circuit um, with transistors at the bottom and, and various um, vias to um, patterned electrodes further up, and then put that onto the same display effect that's used in the Amazon Kindle e-reader. It's an electro electrophoretic display, which itself is, it comes as a flexible foil. So we can put flexible uh, transistor backplane that's needed to address to set up each pixel onto the flexible foil, um, and that is uh, um, that, that, that's a real picture. It's not a mock-up. <coughs> Um, and uh, here is, um, there are some defects on this one because it's a few years old. Uh, you can see some line outs. But that is uh, one of these like laminated sheets that is sort of switching um, while it's being bent. That is flexible electronics. Um, that, that has been taken forward um, uh, to produce a product which didn't quite make it into the market uh, when it was originally intended. But... In some form, it will um, next year, um, which is something we, we, we call the Q. Uh, there was a lot of money raised to get a manufacturing plant in uh, Dresden to do this. Um, uh, it looks like an iPad, um, except that you can sort of um, sort of do that with it because it's plastic. There's no glass in it. Um, the whole screen is a sheet of Coke bottle plastic, polyethylene terephthalate, onto which we've printed a million transistors. We then have this robust uh, e-ink display. So it weighs I mean, nothing, um, and it, um, it, it sort of functions like a large um, Kindle, so you can possibly make out that it's sort of, here is the presentation working its way along. Um, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing, <coughs> we hope. Um, uh, that, well, that uh, yes, it, it got sort of slightly overtaken by the iPad, um, but as a reading device, it's great. I mean, it's it's the lightweight um, virtue that I mean, actually, if you want to read, you want to read like that. Uh, you don't want to have to buy one of these sort of leather um, leather bound sort of stands for an iPad. So uh, so so it's this plastic display is wonderful. Right. Okay, that's the technology push. Um, so. Um, wh where do we head to? Well, I, I, I mentioned um, that we got access to inkjet printing through industry to industry, back to the university. A little twist um, is how small can you make a structure? Um, so this was a paper that came out uh, jointly between people in Plastic Logic um, and in the university. And the so the, the challenge is how small can we get the separation between two conductors? Because that, that sort of defines how good a transistor is. The shorter that channel length, the um, more current it, the transistor will pass and, the more, uh, and it'll, it'll do so more quickly. So the concept is that you put down a first drop of ink, uh, conducting ink, that'll make the first electrode. And it's usually a water-based system. Um, so um, it's hydro 
hydrophilic, um, and then we chemically treat it to make it hydrophobic. So that little red halo indicates that it's now water repelling. So we come down with a second drop um, and splash it over. Um, but for um, small drops, these surface forces are very, very strong. I mean, these are the sorts of forces that control uh, or interactions that control, say, cell walls. Hydrophobic, hydrophilic differentiation is um, the, the sort of source of much of the control of structure in biology. So if, if they will push themselves apart and then end up with a well-defined separation, uh, we've got a small structure. Um, so I'll just, if you look at the bottom left-hand panel, the movie is showing a pre-printed line and then the um, extra drops coming to form the second conductor. And they end up um, spaced um, less than 100 nanometers apart um, with no short circuit and no need to do very expensive photolithography. So that's a very, very small structure that looks as though it's perfectly realistic for scale, for scale up for, for real manufacture. But that was, I mean, in many ways, that's, I mean, I, I would still see this as sort of scientific curiosity, but it's curiosity that we got access to through that um, industrial connection. Um, the, the, the current uh, sort of push is, is for solar cells. Um, um, because all of a sudden energy has become terribly important. Um, it's a zoo. Uh, if you look at um, what has happened to solar cells in the uh, last um, 35 years, um, so time running horizontally and efficiency of solar cells increasing vertically, um, there's, a, there's a lot that's happening, and a lot of them, I mean, a huge amount of venture capital money spent in the USA in the last um, five or ten years, almost all of it going to be wasted, um, because the model didn't make much sense. Um, uh, uh, the, the stuff that we're interested in, unfortunately, is still down here with the low efficiencies, but they, they will get better. Um, uh, I mean, they will get better, because the fundamental science tells us that we can get there. Um, and so currently we have a lot of research on, uh, we and many other groups around the UK and around the world, um, on the notion that we can make solar cells that are, that use very little material, um, and uh, if they use little material then they're cheap. Um, they don't require much energy to make and they shouldn't cost much money. So here is a plastic solar cell. Um, it has got some gold on the back, but that will be removed at some point. Um, but that, so that's a sort of research, well, an early engineering prototype of um, a plastic solar cell, uh, which we're exploiting in a, another company, uh, which we call 819. It takes 8 minutes, 19 seconds for light to travel from the sun to the earth. So we thought that was a good name for a company. It's better than having Helio or Solar in the name of a company because that is thoroughly undifferentiated. And the, the proposition is that you can um, roll-to-roll manufacture um, when I wave my hands, it means that we don't really know how to do it. Um, uh, that we can start with a substrate, just additively put on the bits that are needed to turn into solar cell, uh, and it rolls off the end. That's very different from this sort of subtractive manufacturing, which is how the world of silicon works, which is where you make a lot of it and then sort of throw most of it away, um, having consumed a lot of energy uh, to get to your eventual structure. So that's where there's lots and lots of um, research interest. Um, uh, but I wouldn't want to suggest it's all um, just a matter of technology. Um, there is some scope, I would say, for matching it back up 
to, um, to science. Um, and there's a standard problem with solar cells, which is that even if you make it as well as you can, say with silicon, uh, it's not very efficient. And the problem is that you have a material which essentially has one color. It, it absorbs photons of, um, from the UV down through the visible to whatever color the material's got, and then doesn't absorb in the infrared. So you would like to optimize efficiency by getting a material that would absorb in the infrared too, so absorb most of the solar spectrum. But the downside is that as you absorb to lower photon energies, you bring down the ceiling on the, on the cell voltage. So the most energy you can get out of a photon is the energy of the least energetic photon that was absorbed. So if you absorb in the infrared, there's lots of energy in the blue and the UV that is wasted. It's a very, high, a very energetic photon, and it produces mostly heat before it rattles down to end up with the same sort of electronic excitation energy as the infrared photon. And that limits efficiency to about 30% which is not a very good figure. I mean, even internal combustion engines can do better than that. So one, and that's the, what's called the Shockley-Quiser limit. So there are fancy ways of stacking cells one on top of another um, uh, so that you sort of filter out different um, fractions of the solar spectrum and optimize this, the, the uh, cell voltage for each piece of the spectrum. Uh, that's done for very expensive um, solar cells that you put on satellites. Um, but there's another possibility, which is that we can play tricks and convert one photon into two, um, so-called up or, in that case, that'd be down conversion. Um, and, we didn't act, and we found a way of doing it. Um, in fact, there's been a little flurry of activity uh, in the literature in the last year or so, uh, not uh, exactly producing two photons, but producing two of the excitations photons produce when they're absorbed in materials, um, so-called excitons. Um, and the material that does that is an, it's a molecular semiconductor, um, and those that like the chemistry, uh, it's this thing. It's five benzene rings. Um, if, if it were just two, naphthalene, that would be mothballs. If it's three, it's anthracene, um, and five is pentacene. Pentacene absorbs across the, solar, the visible spectrum. It's red. Um, but it has a very peculiar property, down to the quantum mechanics, um, that it has... The, the, the first, um, the, the red excitation, about 1.8 electron volts, produces the, 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 um, a, an excited state that ought to fluoresce back red. That would be the standard um, fluorescence. But it doesn't do that. Instead, um, it splits up to become two um, uh, what are called triplet, spin triplet states, which are long-lived states that would give... Um, phosphorescence, except it's down in infrared. But very unusually, this material has this spin triplet state at less than half the energy of the singlet, and within um, 10 to the minus 14 of a second, we've time resolved it with our laser spectroscopy, that initial single excitation becomes two, and we've managed to get them both to drift towards um, a junction where we can ionize them and produce. Um, charges. So there's a multiplication. We get twice as many charges out for those for the visible um, part of the spectrum. And if that could be matched with an infrared absorbing material, um, which would probably be inorganic, it might make a great solar cell. Who knows? But that's just very unexpected um, and rather interesting 
um, quantum mechanics. Well, let me conclude um, and come back to... Uh, uh, pontificating about how research works, of course, is a stupid proposition. One always gets it wrong. Um, where do we find the next technology would be, I suppose, the message of um, the way that my particular journey in research has gone, um, because it's the next technology which is probably the best bet to finding, to getting the tools to do something um, that would be really good. Uh, so, uh, of course, the stock message is that you have to be fairly brave and live somewhere um, outside the comfort zone, um, uh, live at the interfaces between the sciences, um, and, of course, um, the, the challenge is that you can feel lonely um, um, because, of course, there's the comforting world of the library um, uh, where, of course, all knowledge is contained. Um, um, but libraries have changed, um, and I think it's had a, an impact on how research gets done. Uh, I did, um, actually, for another purpose, um, uh, for a Darwin lecture in Cambridge, um, go to the trouble of taking volumes out of the departmental library um, in Cambridge. Um, and uh, here is um, the whole of physics in 1960, the physical review. Um, six volumes, uh, about 6,000 pages. And what's really interesting is it covers everything of nuclear physics, um, optics, semiconductors, the works. And you pick it up and you can tell that each volume has been read. Every page has been read probably many times. It feels like a, a good friend. It's a sort of volume that you like to have in your library. Um, and it was probably possible to read all of it or be aware of all of it in 1960. Um, uh, here we are in 2005, <laughs> uh, which I think is the last year that we will um, decide it was worth spending all the money to get the, uh, the monthly issues hardbound. Um, and so I stacked them up. If the, if the departmental safety officer had come into the library, I <laughs> probably got into trouble. Uh, it, it, it's quite absurd. And the thing that really shocked me as I did this uh, is that I realised that no one had opened any one of those volumes. Not one. They'd all been read, if they had been read, electronically. Um, um, and this sort of explosion of knowledge is, is pretty frightening. Um, uh, we, we are, scientists are particularly bad. We don't actually bother to point out where others have got things wrong. We just move on. Um, and I'm afraid I do find myself suggesting the, 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 uh, the sort of wicked proposition that actually um, reading um, is a bad idea. Um, you can always find a reason with so much literature out uh, for why nothing's going to work. Um, and it, I could run through several examples in the, the, the story we've had with our um, plastic semiconductors of where papers have categorically told the reader that things which we did found worked the following year would never work. There's a little flurry of interest in the possibility of making these materials lays in the mid-1990s. And there were some excellent papers from Bell Labs which proved that it wouldn't work, uh, except they were wrong. Um, wrong for perfectly respectable reasons, but what do you do? Do you, do you read the paper and decide, I'm not going to bother, or do you just allow your sort of instinct that it's probably worth worth having a go, and it isn't all that much work to make one of these things, um, and, and see what happens. And I, I, I fear that that sort of spirit um, is somehow deadened um, if uh, all you do um, is look at this mass of stuff, which is now, of course, um, available online. Um, 
of course, in the physical sciences, and maybe that's happening true uh, too in the life sciences with the uh, sort of decline of the pharmaceutical industry, we, we don't have those sort of um, comforting organizations that, of course, most of the time we never liked them, but they, it was comforting that they were there, the big corporate labs that provided the technology that sort of told us where to go next. Uh, in the West, Bell Labs, IBM, Xerox, um, uh, British Telecom Labs at Martlesham Heath were wonderful. The Royal Signals and Radar Establishment at uh, Malvern were absolutely neck and neck with Bell Labs and one or two really important technologies. All that went. Um, it was deemed to be unimportant to the economy. Twenty years later, we realized the effect of having no industrial research. We have no industry. Um, it's sort of night follows day. Very terrifying. Um, but for scientists, it actually matters uh, because actually we need that technology. Uh, so to, to end on a, an optimistic final slide, um, and I don't want to sort of bang the drum for Cambridge particularly, um, but Cambridge uh, is a place where this does work. Uh, we have sort of reinvented where R&D happens, and it's not in corporate labs, it's in small companies. Um, Cambridge um, probably would have happened anyway, even if um, John Bradfield in Trinity College um, had not set up the, the, the first science park in Europe. Um, uh, but, but Trinity did, um, and around Trinity Science Park, you know, a lot else has happened. Um, uh, it, it's sort of um, mushroomed. Uh, uh, the effect is that, I mean, it's fairly well documented that there are 40,000 high-tech jobs with CB postcodes. Um, and we came which is sufficiently far away from London that it's sort of distinct. 40,000 high-tech jobs is a huge success story. Um, we're accused of not producing large companies, but 40,000 jobs is a large company. It just doesn't have the political clout of a large company with 40,000 jobs. Um, and they're very good at weathering recessions. The, uh, the small companies, um, they sort of die and they get uh, and new ones come, and the people who work in them move rather freely from one company to another. Um, the sort of time unemployed in between jobs is pretty short, even during a recession. Um, so it works. Um, it's been tremendously successful. I don't see any reason why that can't be propagated much more widely um, around um, the UK, because it's something we do pretty well. So at this point, you're probably thinking, well, OK, I'm making a plug about Cambridge University having been smart um, and we've got smart people and we feed the system and so on and isn't that good of us and that's, that's our contribution back to the economy. I actually think that the twist is that it runs in the other direction. That the, just the existence of those 40,000 people doing things which are basically engineering is likely to allow the unexpected to happen back in the labs in the university. Um, we need the science park more than we possibly imagine. And that's, uh, that's my optimistic note to finish on. Thank you for your attention.